Hello and welcome to the last episode of Mastering Dungeons of 2022. I am Sean Merwin, as always, here with my flump-loving friend, Teos Abadia. Look hey, what Teos, I've got. Show off the, the good, yeah. He is wearing the Be a Hero Play D&D Flump Pirate t-shirt. So what what better way to end 2022 than that? That's It's it's what's giving me power today, Sean. I'm, I'm drawing all the power. From Flapjack the Flump being on my T-shirt, yeah. it's like an S on my chest. I just feel bulletproof. That's good. Right now. Bulletproof, <laughs> except for the kryptonite of what's a what's a kryptonite for a flump? I, I think I'm it was sure. owl bears. Is it? Yeah, yeah, that that would make sense. That mm-hmm. would make sense. Well, we are ready to see twenty twenty two out and ring in twenty twenty three. So we will go first to our tweet bag, tweet bag, Patreon missive <laughs> to take a comment from YouTube. So we're going to have to add that to the, <laughs> the title of this. Yeah. And it's Kurtugal4576 on YouTube. Noting I, I knew, the following. You know, I knew a Kurtugal. Years ago, my... Po- oh. <laughs> four, I was going to say, seven, I knew a Kurtugal4576 when I was in college. You know, they... Yeah, maybe maybe they're related. Yeah. Uh, years ago, my players were complaining that although they had made specialist spellcaster characters, they still felt s- that certain spells in the game were so good that they made the players' choices feel bad or suboptimal. When Watsi made the choice to make iconic spells like Spiritual Weapon, Magic Missile, and Fireball so good, they were underserving all other choices. Now that the player base is hungry for meaningful variety and power gamers are growing tired of the same builds, are a more balanced reset would be helpful. Uh, lots of interesting food for thought in terms of game design of D&D yeah. as a game, D&D as a hobby in there. But I'm going to let Teos go first. Well, this is kind of a topic we haven't really explored, and, and it's, it's fascinating. I love this question. Um you know, do you want all spells to be the same in terms of their power level? Do you want iconic spells to f- remain iconic? Like, do you want that wizards always cast magic missile because that's such an iconic part of the game? Uh, is balance more important than that? Do you want imbalances so that when players are reading through the book, they go, ha ha, fireball is actually better. It does more damage. I'm going to go with fireball and feel really smart for having made that choice which to the designer was actually obvious and that's why you put it there like that these are great questions what do you think Sean I think this is one of the big paradoxes of D&D <laughs> right because it is a game machine and as a machine it suffers a bit when there is a great imbalance but as a hobby there is let's call it a not insignificant segment of the audience that craves this imbalance because this imbalance lets them do what's fun for them, which is find the optimal solution to a problem. Mm-hmm. And so do you play into that? Do you serve that segment of the audience and allow this imbalance in the game hmm. uh, and lose them as fans and players of the game? Or do you make a perfectly balanced game, which may serve the players as a whole better but you lose out on this segment of people for whom problem solving and this optimization is a big part of the hobby for them. 
and there is no there is no right answer uh but you know what helps in in situations like this is as a designer being able to play with a lot of different Mm -hmm. people uh as as a as a company doing market research to find out how big that population of optimizers is and is it better to serve them or is it better to make a game that is very balanced um and this you you can look back at 4e and say that was a much more balanced game Mm -hmm. overall than you know any of the other editions including fifth edition was and you can say well 4e didn't do as well as the other ones so therefore people don't want that whereas there could be a million other reasons why fourth Mm -hmm. edition didn't do as well as at least on the surface didn't do as well as the other editions that had nothing to do with the balance but you could you know you could do that uh i forgot the latin term for it but it's after this therefore because of this Uh uh right false attribution of of a reason why something happened uh so right all of this is is a is part and parcel to designing a game but then having the marketing uh of the game be very important and the past of the game and the the nostalgia of a game be very important to what actually goes into the game that you're making yeah i think i rather like where 5e strikes a balance in in that it is um it's not too balanced and that does make it interesting, and I think it does reward some of the iconic things. And I, and I think, I think there was even designers that said like we made Fireball a little bit better, right? We made the dragons better, mm-hmm. and so they they hit hard for their dragon hits hard for its CR. Like that's just because they're cooler. It's in the name, mm-hmm. um, and and that's probably okay, and and overall a good thing for the game. But but it's interesting, and you you don't want to abuse it too much, and 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 we do see a little bit of that to where like you know. Cleric spell lists tend to be pretty similar across clerics. And that's true of other classes as well, because it's like, well, yeah, that's that's the best thing. You know, spirit guardians, right? <laughs> it's delicious. Let's go with it, right? And, you know. mm-hmm. and, and it, if you go back to first edition, where especially at lower levels and you had to memorize spells rather than having spell slots, you know, you would memorize those spells that you thought you would need for that day. And then generally what would happen is you would realize that the spell you took wasn't the optimal spell or was completely useless in the situation right. that you were in. And it would have been so much better if you had had friends instead of magic missile. Right. And as the additions evolved, mechanics were changed to allow you to choose have more spell slots or get spell slots on the fly if you're a cleric you can if for third edition right you could get rid of a, a spell slot and change it out for a healing spell so you didn't have to memorize all healing yeah. spells and so it gave it gave the player so, sort of more uh more power more autonomy but then by doing that it's like it's never enough we want to be even more ready for any situation and so the further along that path you go, the more you are requiring or inviting people to be optimal. And do we need to be optimal all the time in this game to make the game fun? And some people will say yes. I think a majority of us would say no. 
there you can have fun in this game without having the most optimal character in every situation yeah absolutely um one of the things that's interesting is is to see as the game adds uh new source books you end up a little bit like the magic the gathering problem where it's like either a card is better than an existing card or it's worthless <laughs> other than its rarity right. and maybe some art you know whatever that gives it some value but but if if a set comes out and no card is is worth putting into your deck to replace another one then people are disappointed right and 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 D and D can get to the point where the only thing that's going to be stronger is silvery barbs, and and we see what that mm-hmm. causes, right? When when you get a new like, oh, this is obviously better, right? Healing spring, that kind of thing, yep. and everybody just goes, oh, we will all now take this because it's so clearly better, and and mm-hmm. that's a very hard design balance issue, right? You you don't want to introduce something that becomes the new obvious on every single spell list, and. And obviously, we can see even very good game designers. Except if you do. Except if you do. Right. Except if you do. Right. If you do want people to buy the new book, buy the new stuff, you do make it uh, more powerful, at least for those people who are going to buy every book and scour mm-hmm. it for the better option. So, right. It's, well, yeah. And, and then you, you get into look at it from there, so many different ways. Should there be errata, right? And I was a fascinating thing with fourth edition that fourth edition wanted to be the addition that just said look your dm makes the call don't worry about it we don't have to fix anything mm-hmm. you get to fix it at your table right. and then there are things like organized play or just any number of things because fourth edition had enough you know sort of loops of things that people were trying to do that if you broke that loop suddenly your whole character build didn't work right and so people had a mm-hmm. lot of invested right. emotional right. angle to i must be able to do my thing this is my thing and if someone goes like well actually that's not how you know your warlock rod works then all of it fell apart and people got mad and right. and wizards went from no errata to unbelievable amounts of errata for fourth edition kind of overreacting to that and and then yeah so so we'll see yeah yeah and you brought up a, another topic that that feeds into this which is you know dms can and should be able to control their own games mm-hmm. and Right. The nature of the game is that the DM has to have at least some sort of agency to be able to fix problems on the fly if they see one in their game. And yes, for every few DMs that do this well, there is definitely a DM who who might have some sort of power issues and, you know, want to punish players. And that's a whole thing, too. And the rules, you know, in some ways can insulate players from that. But if you have that problem, there's no amount of rules that are going to insulate you from it. True. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's better to, to have DMs train DMs uh, to, to run games that are fun for the players that are at their tables. And that's always a good question. We can look at it today when we talk about chapter nine, you know, to what extent is the book saying to the DM, Hey, you get to control this stuff, right? Is that happening or is it just mm-hmm. sort of here are the rules? Because the more that it's yep. taught as rules, the more that the DM feels they can't change things and that they don't have a say in it, mm-hmm. right? And you you really have to tell people that it's okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And tell people if you do change these rules, this is what's going to happen in this machine that we've presented to you. You're going to switch out these two cogs 
well, this is this might be the result of you switching out these cogs. So be cognizant of that. See, cog and cognizant. I did a little wordplay okay. there. I liked it. I, that was yeah. Good. I'm on. I'm on today. Well, as Teos mentioned, we are going to talk about Chapter 9 today of the Player's Handbook for 5e, which talks all about combat. But first, we're going to get into our news and commentary section. And we're going to start with some sad news. Uh, we all learned that Kim Mohan passed away uh, last week. Kim was an amazing editor, one of the few people to successfully make the transition from TSR into Wizards of the Coast. Uh, he was hired by TSR in 1979 after a brief career as a newspaper writer and editor. And he retired from Wizards of the Coast in 2013. So that's, you know, 14 years with a small stint of working for Gary Gygax's uh, New Infinities uh, company before going back to TSR. But he was one of the few people that contributed to official products for all five <laughs> editions of, of AD&D and then D&D. Um, Amazing. He was perhaps best known as the longtime editor in Dungeon of, of Dungeon and Dragon magazines. He was a lead editor and a managing editor at Wizards of the Coast and contributed to countless D&D products and game systems over the years. Um, the tributes that people gave to Kim were voluminous and heartfelt, you could tell, on social media. And they really uh, drive home his the influence that he had on what the game was, you know, from its inception back in, you know, 19... In the 1970s to what it is right now and then to what it will be going forward with his stewardship of the editing there yeah really sad to hear um i always think about kim from a time that when we worked uh, on ddi articles and he sent an email prior to gen con and said if any of you are, are going to be and he, he said to anybody who had contributed to to the uh D, D insider uh, articles for Dungeon and Dragon magazines during fourth edition. And he said, I'm going to be at Gen Con. If you want to meet up for coffee and bring a piece of your work and have me go over it or a previous article, you know, look at why we made certain edits, you know, something that you're working on, whatever. And, and I took him up on it as many other, my friends did. And, and, and it was amazing that he would just give you this time to out of the kindness of his heart. You know, I don't know how many people he met with that weekend, but he met with a bunch of people to just spend, you know, a half hour, uh, and gave me a lot of really good feedback on a piece that, that I had written that had then been rejected and, and sort of talking through the whys and maybes and what to do. And that was really great. Um, and that, that I think, speaks to the kind of, it, it's a window into the kind of person he was and, and, and how he touched so many people. And, and that's all we can kind of hope for in, in this hobby is to have that kind of effect on people like Kim did. So really one of the greats, incredible what he accomplished, but but just also what a person he was, right? That's great. Yeah. And another thing he brought, other than that kindness, uh, which I took him up on as well, was the style of D&D &D writing, him coming from the newspaper industry mm -hmm. where it's clear, concise, to the point. Some of the earlier stuff that we saw from D&D &D was sort of verbose <laughs> and did not work well as a game manual, as opposed to prose or right poetry in some yeah. cases or or this other and so his stewardship brought this idea that you want this writing to be clear concise get across the point because it's not prose or poetry it's 
it's a game manual. So, yeah. right, that that sort of writing, that that clear writing that we need in games, uh, we can thank Kim for mm -hmm. a lot of that over the years. Mm -hmm. We have more news about DMs Guild because its content is coming to Roll20 in February of 2023. Teos, I'm going to let you cover this. All right, yeah. So in February, you're going to be able to sell the Roll20 content you have created via the DMs Guild. So what will happen is things like, you know, adventures that you've written, art packs, token sets, whatever that you have on the DMs Guild, you can now, when someone buys it on the DMs Guild, it can be unlocked on the VTT as well. To do that, you need a Roll20 partner account and you need a DMs Guild creator account. So if you don't have one of those, go get the one you don't have so that you're, you're set up there. Um, we've got a link in our show notes to different articles about this topic that include a link to where you sign up for your partner account. Um, it's a fairly innocuous process. Um, royalty splits will be honored in the same exact way since the purchase takes place on the DMs Guild. So it all, it all feels like a DMs Guild purchase. You know, royalty splits, if you have several people involved in the project, all of that will be done through there. It's just that you're unlocking it on the VTT. And in January, we can expect further guidelines guidelines and then in february is when the sales can begin so uh, being december start planning now thinking through what you might want to have on that platform and then in january you'll have the info you need to do to use your account cool wow that is that is not something i was aware of and that is of great interest to me with a lot of stuff on the dms yeah yeah awesome uh, going from the DMs Guild to the D&D cartoon, that D&D cartoon that we all loved for those of us who are pretty old uh, back in the 80s is returning as a four-part comic book. So IDW will have a four-part miniseries featuring, featuring Dungeon Master, Hank, Sheila, Diana, Presto, Eric, Bobby, and Uni the Unicorn, as well as the evil Venger. Yeah, March um, it's 2023. Dungeons and Dragons. Yep, it's called Dungeons and Dragons Saturday Morning Adventures, and it will be releasing in March of 2023. Pretty cool. I mean, what I really want we are looking <laughs> is oh. a cartoon that is yeah. on TV. Uh, we keep on getting all sorts of other things. Uh, it's it's interesting because for a long time, many years, it was like D and D forgot this thing existed, right, or ignored that existed, and now there are all these. Mm -hmm indicators around it right the the character art appears in the new starter set there's this four-part mm -hmm. series it's like you're always doing something that isn't the one thing that i think a lot of us would like to see which is a new D, &D cartoon but one day mm. I, I can hope you know you know at the beginning of pixar movies when they have the short and then the pixar movie how cool would it be if there was a a D, &D cartoon in front of the D and D movie. Oh wow, that'd be amazing. See, th this is yeah. why they should hire me to come up with these with these horrible ideas. I mean, wonderful, wonderful ideas. Whoa, what's happening? Yep. Speaking of wonderful ideas, <laughs> speaking of wonderful ideas, uh -huh. um, are we going to see Arcadia in print? Uh, MCDM has a survey to ask you whether you want the best of Arcadia compilation in print. Um, the survey also asks, uh, you covered it up. There you go. 
survey also asked what type of offering and what articles you would want to include. And that is on their Patreon page. So you can go check it out there. Whether or not you are a current subscriber to Arcadia, you uh, have that opportunity to make your voice heard. Pretty cool. And the final bit of news is an article by our friend DM David. And this is super fascinating to me. So fascinating that I want to hear Teos talk about it. It's on the swinginess of the D20. Yes, this his latest blog is all about how the D20 is, statistically speaking, a very swingy way to generate numbers in the game, right? Because you have just a single die, so it's an equal chance of 1 to 20. You know, you're, there's a 5% chance of landing each one of those, 5 times 20, 100. Um, and so you, because of that, what happens to the math of the game is that you can have a fairly large bonus when you're trying to do something, and you can still roll low and fail. And a novice character who has a very small bonus or no bonus at all, or even a penalty, could roll high and succeed, right? And if you've played D&D or D20 games, you've seen this. And then the question is, what do you do about that, right? And, and various editions have worked hard to balance this. So you can provide experts with such a large bonus that they always succeed. You know, third edition, I think I had a plus 43 to my track check or something like that with my ranger um, so that you are never, ever going to fail. Um, and But that requires real corner cases and spells and all sorts of stuff. Um, and what ends up happening is if you provide experts with such a large bonus that they always succeed, game actually becomes a little boring for them and for the rest of the party. And the novice now has zero chance, right? If the DCs expect that this huge bonus is in play, then you end up with this on-off switch of who can do things. Um, and, and so he breaks down in this blog what all these different options are and how to compare that to games that have used 3D6 or 2D10 or fudge dice, which have pluses and minuses. So you get a result between minus four to four. And how they all do this differently, because by having multiple dice, you create a bell curve where you tend to get results in the middle of the dice, right? You're going to get few ones and sixes on a D6, for example. You're going to get something in the middle, and you're going to get those kind of middle ranges. Um, but so he breaks down kind of what are these options, and why is it fun to have the D20 to be that swingy? He you know, quotes also Wizards of the Coast people talking about that. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed that that read. It was It was a nice way to think about that topic. Yeah, it's in in my class. I spend probably half of a eighty minute class talking specifically about this uh, when we get into more advanced role playing games like like D anD D and the other ones that that David talks about. And it's super fascinating stuff that a lot of times even game designers, whether full time, part time, you know, novice or expert, sometimes don't understand or even attempt to consider in their games and. This came up in a game that we are currently working on, or a supplement we are currently working on at, at Ghostfire Gaming for our Grim Hollow, where it's sort of a subsystem, and we began with a D20, but it's a subsystem where it's not a pure pass-fail thing. There's like degrees of success or degrees of failure, and you can use bonuses or there might be penalties to to uh, per persuade that role, to, mm -hmm. to change that role. And we ended up switching to 2D10 rather than the D20 mm. because we wanted to limit those, right? You want yeah. you want to have the fun narrative of catastrophic failures or, you know, high arching successes, 
but you also don't want to have them happening all the time. Mm -hmm. And you want the bonuses to mean something more than, you know, more than just if I roll a one, I've turned what's a terrible defeat into still a pretty bad defeat. So, <laughs> you know, we, we switched to those two D 10 um, to sort of even that out. And, you know, that's just one of the things that I've used in my own game design to, to make the swinginess of that D 20, a little less, um, a little less powerful. Yeah, I did a, a design project where I was creating a bunch of tables. And one of the things I was looking at is like, you know, one of the things I asked myself is, well, do I want an equal chance of everything in this table? And there are times when the answer should be yes. And there are times when you say, well, actually, it would be better if certain things happened more often because that m matches the world, you know, kind of works well. And so then looking at, OK, what dice should I use? Right. How many entries do I want in this table and what kind of a spread do I want? And then, you know, you, you start, you know web searching like what are the probabilities of all these different dice spreads and which one mm -hmm. looks right and, and it's kind of hilarious to, to do that but it really does shape the experience differently you, another mm -hmm. thing i think of is it um does. gumshoe i remember the first time i played a game of gumshoe of knight's black agents which uses a single d6 and the the dm said that or gm said that and i thought to myself oh, i'm not gonna like this game just a single d6 but the way it works is you're you're DC tends to be pretty low, but you have a number of points tied to sort of the equivalent of your skill points. And you can burn those points temporarily to add to your six. And so it becomes really easy math. And because the point of the game is to be awesome, you know, you are a really cool Jason Bourne type spy, you know, Mission Impossible type thing, then you can burn these points to auto succeed. But you know, you can't do that forever. You can't succeed at everything. So you get to pick which things you want to succeed at. And I mean, that is such a great system and it's made possible because it's so simple with just a single die, a very narrow band of DCs, and then this benefit to boost to it. So it's fascinating how game designers can, yeah. can play with that. Yeah. Yeah. And it all goes back to that question that you have to ask yourself at the start of any project that when you're building a game engine, which is how often do we expect the characters to succeed? How often do we expect them to fail? What are the consequences of success or failure uh, in our game? And what control do we want to yeah. give players and game masters over that narrative? And I'm sure uh, DM David talks about all of that in his article. And we may, as we talk more about 5e and more about 1D&D, as more playtest packets come out, get back into that sort of uh, questioning of what this game system should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That leads us directly into our main topic here on Mastering Dungeons this week, which is Chapter 9 of the 5e Player's Handbook. As we have said, it's been about 10 years since the release of that very first playtest packet of D&D Next, eight years since the release of the initial starter set, and we want to look at how it's been going in these intervening years, what we've learned, and what we might expect going forward. So let's dig into game design. Chapter 9, Combat. So the first thing we get is a description of the order of combat. And not surprisingly, the first thing that you do is you determine surprise. Is either side surprised? Then you establish the positions of all of the creatures and everything else that's involved in the combat. 
you roll initiative, then you each get your turn in the initiative order, and then you begin the next round. Um, any any thoughts on on that? Yeah. Anything sub- different from previous editions? Or yeah. Anything- you would like to change? I mean, there are so many things that have changed across the editions around just these topics. But surprise is an interesting one because there have been editions that did things like say there is a surprise round. Do we need to use it in this particular mm-hmm. combat? And here what 5th edition does is to say the first round of combat, you may be surprised and may not uh, act. Um, and one of the questions that comes up is, is to what extent you should remain surprised there's sort of a lack of clarity around should you remain surprised you know say you you set up an ambush and you start attacking uh it, at some point do you cease to be surprised right do you, is there anything that changes that and i think can be unclear for a lot of dms but the the intention seems to be that you determine this for the first round and play it through the entire the first round and you do things like well, you, you skip your turn essentially when you're surprised and you don't get to use reactions until your turn has ended. So you might be first in the order of initiative, you do nothing, but now you have the ability to take reactions because you have had your first round already. So there's some things like that that are sort of surprising mm-hmm. in how they play and can require thinking through it that I think could be maybe clear. I mean, I kind of actually like the surprise round. I know why they don't want it. They don't want to label a thing as a sort of totally different thing. But the surprise surprise round kind of almost has a, a clarity to it that makes it easier for new DMs. I think. Okay. Yeah. If you if you do change it to there being a surprise round, that gives you a point of game mechanical differentiation that you could play with mm-hmm. for certain things, feats or class abilities while you're in a surprise round or when you act in a surprise round you can do these sorts of things which of course adds complication to the game but also gives game designers an avenue to introduce new new rules new abilities so that's that's one thing um i thought it was interesting that it was specified if neither side attempts to be stealthy then both are aware of each other Mm -hmm. so you know it's it's trying to say how surprise can be but i can think of times when you are not trying to be stealthy but you may be able to surprise someone yeah uh, and so, i think older editions were more like that right sort of the idea that you want you come around the corner were you ready for each other was sort of more the ad and style style of play right right yeah um, and of course if you forest. are surprised you can't move or take an action on the first turn but you can take reactions um until that turn ends or you can't until you you can't take reaction until that turn ends um when it's your turn uh anything else about surprise surprise i think has um been bigger in other editions like i think of especially third edition where monsters could really really unleash some pain on you and so being surprised could almost mean character death Right. It was, it was something players really feared. So they worked hard to counter surprise. And it's interesting to note that in fifth edition, that tends to not be such a huge problem. You don't want to lose your turn, but you're not expecting to die as a result of it. And so that that's a big difference. Mm-hmm. Another thing that's made a huge difference is the group checks, because if you are doing a group stealth check, it's not, well, five of us succeeded. 
but you know cleric or paladin over there with disadvantage and an eight dexterity let everyone know that we were sneaking up on them group checks allow for better stealth roles which then allows for more surprise particularly on the player character side of the equation yeah yeah what then we get into initiative uh initiative is of course uh the dm making a role for an entire group of identical characters according to the rules so each member of the group acts at that same time and then initiative is a dexterity check and thus it is affected by anything that modifies dexterity ability checks although it is not a skill. Mm -hmm. So the bards, for example, have the Jack of all trades ability that allows them to add half their um, proficiency bonus to uh, all skill checks. And since this initiative is a skill check, they can add their half of their uh, initiative bonus to their initiative. One, one interesting change is in fifth edition, you no longer have the compare your dexterity modifier which was in fourth and third and maybe some previous ones to, to break a tie. So if two people, two characters, two creatures have the same bonus or same uh, result on the, on the roll, they, um, the DM can determine if it's two monsters who should go first. Uh, the players can determine if they're there. So it's basically just make a decision. And if you want to, optionally, you can roll dice to, to have a roll off. But you don't actually look up the modifier, which is something that a lot of people miss. Just a streamlined yeah. play. It, should initiative, should initiative be a skill? No, I don't think you want people putting points into it or becoming proficient in it. Mm -hmm. I think that that ends up being a little too much. And I don't even know that jack of all trades really should affect it. But mm -hmm. is it ever a good idea to? have initiative determined by something other than the dexterity skill check um on the monster side i like it like i like things where monsters act you know say uh, on their initiative and on 20 right things like that can be cool or initiative mm -hmm. plus 10 right sometimes okay. you see monsters that have that kind of design that yeah. i rather like that because it spaces things out um i don't know what do you think mm -hmm. Well, I'm thinking of situations where you are you are talking to what you think are the guards and you're parlaying with them and then you realize that they're not really guards areas who you were hired to find. And so an insight check might be more appropriate mm -hmm. to realize that this thing that you're about to do yeah. Um, you know, you, you, you act quicker when you realize that this is an ambush or they're, they're trying to fool you. Uh, That's that, and by making initiative, by making initiative a skill, then you could put it with different, right. Put it with different intelligence check to realize that the bubbling water, uh, means that gators are about to come out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just, huh. it's, it's a, it's something that. I've always toyed with uh, when I think about game design, but in D&D, &D, it's always been sort of dexterity-based, so we just leave it right. as dexterity-based. Yeah, that's interesting. Hmm. Uh, yep, and then uh, in order of combat, we get your turn. What can you do on your turn? Well, you can move. You can take one action, and you can take a bonus action, 
and reactions you can take any time as long as they are triggered by something specific and they refresh at the start of your turn and you can do reactions once per round and you can also interact with an object once at the dm's discretion Whew. yeah so i i got winded just talking about it is <laughs> is that too much is that just right what, what's what's our thought on uh on that in D D? I think it's okay. Um, it, it's it's fine. I think in the fifth edition player's handbook, in that generally what you're doing is you're moving and taking an action, and the reaction only comes up every now and then, and the bonus action comes up sometimes based on your class, and you're going to get good enough at doing that thing that is your class feature that does that, like the rogues with their cunning action that you're going to know how to do that and you're going to do it pretty well. So I think in general it works well uh, in the 5th edition player's handbook. <laughs> Since then, we've seen more and more bonus actions, reactions, even no action things, things you track, things that, you know, and, and Tasha's is full of this. And, and that requires so much work that then this is, I think, too much. So I think it depends on what else the system is doing. I think this is fine when there's more around this or when the bonus action is a menu of choices as it was for minor actions in fourth edition or quick actions in third edition, then you get too much load on the system, right? And the action economy becomes this big thing that characters and players are trying to exploit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I've, you know, I've having played previous editions, uh, without things like a bonus action where it's just you move and then you do the thing. Mm -hmm. No bonus actions, no reactions, nothing like that. Um, and then thinking of a games where there's more, even more complicated, more steps in the actions economy and more choices within each uh, step of this economy. And I'm, I'm always curious about the right the right mix of complication for the wide variety of players that we want to have playing the game and what is best. One thing that D&D has, has often done, especially second edition on, is to codify it so in, in such a way, right? So codified that players really play that way. And it's interesting when you play a game that isn't that way. So like Legend of the Five Rings has a thing where you can get flanking, right? We're all familiar with that. In my time playing across many, many DMs, I would always be able to get flanking. It didn't matter how it didn't matter how many people were around that creature already. It didn't matter how far away that person was. Can I get flanking that guy? Sure. Like that was it was basically a, if you just ask for flanking, you get flanking. And it was so funny coming from a DD mindset where the answer was many times no, there's no more space around them, or you can only move your water, so no, you can't get there. You know, it just it was really fascinating. The players were just like, I don't care. You know, DMs were just, I don't care. Yeah, sure, just go for it. Like, do, do your thing, and can I do this, interact with this object, and then with that object, and this thing, right? Like, we see Chris Perkins in the Ack Inc. Uh, games with Viari, right? Viari's yeah. like, can I swing from the chandelier? Can I climb up the triceratops? Can I also do this thing? And everybody just starts laughing because. Perkins would just say yes to whatever Viari would come up with, right? <laughs> right. Right. And if the game is more fun that way, 
then then why don't we put it in the right. rules? After watching several Act Inc. games, I would look to the person to my right or left and say, you know what? That would be a fun game to play because mm-hmm. it's not D and D, but it would be a fun game, fun game to try. And so it's questions like that, which you know beg the question: Why aren't we seeing that in the next edition of the game? If that's yeah. how people are playing the game anyway. Yeah, and we'll talk about this when we get to interesting actions. to think about. Yeah, actions in combat, because actions in combat is one of the things that we see it get more and more codified. When I think actually the benefit of 5e has been that it's been codified enough to create a common language, but open enough to encourage neat ideas. And I've been very impressed with 5th edition, how new players, you know, you just give them their character sheet, you explain them the basics, and they start coming up with really cool concepts. So the character sheet does not inhibit their desire to do wild, neat things. There have been previous editions like third and even fourth where it all feels so codified that they just can't imagine doing something other than what the character sheet possesses, right? And I think it's becoming more that way. Like if you start really saying to people, you know, the interact with a monster or what would influence a monster action, do you want to take the, you know, it's, it's like this menu of options, you know, in the Terminator's brain. <laughs> That's It's either an option right. or it isn't, right? Because of the way people start treating it. Do we need to add a do a cool thing action to to six e? It's an action, action. You do a cool thing. Yes, exactly. All right. So, well, uh, that's the basics of a combat round. Yeah, now can we're I talk about say movement and position? We yeah. The um, I do think that this section is really well written. Like, I love the intro paragraph to combat. I like. All of this is very clean. Like I think there's a very meticulous approach to this section that reads really well and I think is very clear. And that part I really love about this. Yeah, I I think it did. I think one of the reasons why 5e was such a success is that it took the right approach to this. It explained it well mm-hmm. and it eliminated the, the worst... Um, faults of previous editions by being too much Mm -hmm. but got in just enough that it did allow people to understand it with with some explanation so i think that was good uh so with movement position we we hear about breaking up your move so if you uh so, so if you try to use more than one method of movement flying swimming walking climbing you subtract the distance that you've already moved from your new speed. And if it gets to zero or less, you can't move any further. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought I've had people try to explain it to me and it, it was confusing. And then when I read this, I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever, however far you've moved, you subtract it from whatever movement you're trying to do that mode. And if it's zero or less, you're, you stopped. Yeah. Um, We hear about difficult terrain, which means you have to spend an extra foot of movement for each foot you've moved within that terrain. One thing I've noticed is, I think it was in fourth edition, they had challenging and damaging terrain, where challenging terrain was you had to make uh, make a check in order to be able to move within that terrain. And damaging terrain was obviously for each 
you know, each five feet you move, you take a certain amount of damage. And I would have loved to have that in there. It may be in the Dungeon Master's Guide for all I know, but I would have loved to have it here just to get get players yeah. to start thinking about this in terms of uh, other ways that your character may be challenged rather than just have yeah. it be a monster in front of you. Yeah. Uh, we learn about being prone and understand that it costs half your movement to stand while you, when you are prone, uh, which was different than previous editions where it would either be like a set amount of movement you would have to spend to stand or you'd have to spend your whole movement to stand, um, which made it problematic then. Uh, if somebody could move 60 or somebody can move 10, it costs the same amount for you to stand from prone. I think that's one of those that that uh, it's we, easy to oversee kind of how good this decision actually turned out to be. Like half your movement is enough of a penalty to limit you somewhat, but it doesn't, you know, end you and 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 often won't be a big factor. And that's actually probably pretty good. Like this is one of these that it's hard to to really see how good this is because essentially what it does is just work fine in the background. Yeah, for sure. Um, moving around. Or through other creatures any creatures even allies their spaces count as difficult terrain if you try to move through an allied square or a you can't move through an enemy square unless they the size different uh difference allows that and that might allow normal movement if the creature doing the moving is tiny or at least two sizes smaller than the square that they're moving through yeah, um, I'm on flying movement if you're I was gonna say, I'm, on, I'm on record for not loving that because of the situation where you're in a small corridor, especially a five foot corridor, but even in a 10 foot wide corridor and you're in marching order and you have to go through, you're in the rear ranks and you have to go to, you know, through three or four characters. Uh, that's, you know, <laughs> a lot of movement that just gets sucked up and you can end up, especially a five foot corridor, you can end up in a situation where nobody's moving around. It's It's terrible. I just think you should be able to let allies through your square and just not have be difficult. Mm. Um, I don't think there's much gained tactically by counting that extra foot for that, but so be it. Yeah. I can't argue with that. I don't, I think it helps. I think it's a problem that can be fixed with encounter design, but is it a problem that should need to be fixed with encounter design? That's a, it's a good question. Mm -hmm. Uh, Flying movement, if you're knocked prone while flying, you fall unless your movement is magical or if you have a, uh, the hover rider to your flight. We learn about creature size, which, of course, is I'm trying to do it from memory here. Is it tiny, small, medium, large, huge, gargantuan? Yep. And, and right? the, the only real change here is that they got rid of colossal. So it used to be a colossal category. Right. Uh, and now the, your your maximum sizes is 20 by 20 or larger, just as all gargantuan. That's fine. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Yep. Then we get to the meat of the chapter, which is actions in combat. Um, we are told by the rules that a round is six seconds. So don't make things that uh, that don't take any time, such as remembering something, looking at something, or saying something as an action. That was my editorial uh editorial mm -hmm. analysis there uh right if it's something that's instantaneous it doesn't take any time at all don't make it an action or a bonus action uh, 
and similarly don't allow something that goes on for much longer than six seconds be only an action uh like you know reciting this epic poem uh that would normally take you a minute and a half to be done in a round yeah you want to lead us here through a little yeah. bit of this actions in combat sure and, and you know i'm gonna go back just one second to before this section there's a little sidebar this is variant of playing on a grid and none of it's really particularly interesting uh i think it, it's all very you know you can use squares instead of five feet increments um, but one thing that's interesting, it talks about range and you can just start adjacent to one square, sort of representing like say an arrow you're firing. So it's adjacent to your square and then the shortest number of squares between you and the square that the target is. And that's your, your range. And you can do the shortest way to count that out. And that's great. But one of the things it doesn't do, and, and there are a couple of sections that almost talk about this, but don't really, is when you have a, a, um, sort of a triangular situation where you have a, a creature that's flying and you want to know what is the distance uh, and, and, you know, diagonally to it. And there's nothing that really tells you how to quickly measure that. If you have no, you know, like you have no combat in, um, you have no squares to count because the thing is, is, is hovering, right? It's not on a map. It's not, it's not lateral movement. It's height wise. And previous editions would say some things like, you know, take the, uh, I think it was the longest of the sides or something like that. I forget, you know, there were some, there were some shortcuts and, and here there's no rule that really covers that. I think that probably is, even though it's a small corner case, is probably worth addressing. Um, Should they be teaching us the Pythagorean theorem? That is the best way. Uh, a squared plus B squared plus equals C squared is probably what, what everybody should be doing. But, um, <laughs> but usually choosing the longest side <laughs> will do fine. Um, all right, so okay. back to this actions in combat. This is an interesting thing. We, we get attack uh, as the most common action to take in combat. We get cast a spell, which is what spellcasters do often. We get dash, which you get to move your speed. Uh, and that's an interesting way of doing it because a lot of additions have looked at, you know, how sh should you be able to move again, right? How do you, how, what's the language of that? And so here we get an example of how 5e codifies things. Rather than saying, Hey, you could also spend your action to move, and but what is? Didn't you already move? Has you know? Here we say specifically, you can take the dash action, and you get to move your speed. Right, you gain extra movement equal to your speed, um, so you're moving more by using the dash action. That's an interesting way. Um, worth noting, there's no charge in this edition, um, as there was in third. Disengage, so your movement doesn't provoke opportunity attacks the entire turn. Some editions have done things like, you know, the first square you left, you know, or one threatened square you could ignore. This is just no opportunity attacks. You're being careful disengaging. Um, dodge, where this is a favorite of tanks. You, until the start of your next turn, any attack roll has disadvantage if you can see the attacker. And you make dexterity saving throws the advantage. And that is something that's used often to... to you know, kind of sit there and tank and inhibit uh, a creature that wants to attack the one highly armored individual. Very effective. Help, also another very powerful thing. In, in the D&D 5th edition, you don't have to be proficient at the thing you're trying to help with. Um, you can help to give uh, advantage on the next ability check to perform the task you're helping with. And alternately, you can be within five feet of a creature and give advantage on an attack. Uh, for an ally 
Um, and so if your ally attacks the target before your next turn, they get advantage on their first attack roll. You yep. can hide. The, 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 thing yeah. about, the thing about help that I wanted to mention was the rule specifically say for that first part where the creature gains advantage on an ability check, it's only helpable until the start of mm-hmm. your next turn. Yeah. So for things like make give me a survival check to you know to search this forest for the outlaws technically you're not allowed to help that because that's not something that's done in turns yeah good point. Uh, now i've seen people allow that but it's mm-hmm. technically not something that you should be doing yeah exceed the, it exceeds the span of that that's a good point because there are, yeah i've seen that too someone helps with the thing that's a long-term thing um hide mm-hmm. is interesting because a lot of the fifth edition player's handbook talks about hiding and doesn't really tell you all that you need to know. And you almost have to copy and paste every little piece of it to really come up with the full uh, rule set of what hiding means. And so here we just simply say, make a dexterity stealth check in an attempt to hide following the rules for hiding. If you succeed, you gain certain benefits. Go see this other section. Uh, I don't love that. I think this is the section where it would have been perfect to have put all the rules. Yeah. Um, but no, you have to go could, and could add I, up. Could, so. could I could I walk you through? Could yeah. I walk you through the journey of finding out all the rules for this? So uh it says uh if you read at the hide section, it says see unseen attackers and targets, which is later in the chapter. But then this section doesn't actually tell you the rules you need to hide. So where do you go? You well, if you if you go to chapter seven, it's under dexterity, or so you think because it says one of the main factors in determining whether you can find a hidden creature is how well you can see the area, which might be lightly or heavily obscured, as explained in Chapter 8. So then you go to Chapter 8, which has the environment, uh, light, and vision, but then it still doesn't specifically talk to you about when you can or can't hide. So you really don't, the rules never really tell you at all when, where, how you can hide. What you have to do is sort of use the negative capability of other <laughs> things, where if you go to Wood Elf, it says you could attempt to hide even when you are only lightly obscured. So that must mean, okay, otherwise, if you're lightly obscured, you cannot hide in a heavy rain or foliage or mist or other natural phenomenon. And then in Halfling, we learn you can hide even if you're obscured only by a creature that is at least one size larger than you. So that tells you that if you're not a Halfling, you can't hide, right? right. It's these sort of ferreting out these cases in order to figure out where the rules say you can actually hide. And it's it's a shame because uh, the rules are basically essentially the same ones from 4th edition. Uh but they don't establish that. And because of that, you see wildly inconsistent decisions on whether you can do things like peer around a corner and fire a crossbow at someone and be hidden. Because uh, the fourth edition rules are pretty clear about saying, well, you have now revealed yourself when you go to shoot. So unless it's all part of one power, you've, you're going to reveal yourself. Your movement, you're going to have to move. You're now visible. You're now not hidden. Now you take your action on hidden, right? Yeah. Even though what you're trying to do is that mechanic of peering around the edge. And this never does that. And so you end up with all kinds of wild options. Um, 
Another action is ready, and this one's fine. Uh, you know, you are going to say what is going to trigger your reaction, and then what is the action you're going to take in response to that trigger. I'll pull the lever when the cultist steps on the trapdoor. That kind of thing is the example given there. If the goblin steps next to me, I'll move away. Um, and you can take your your reaction to do this. So it also uses uses both your action to take the ready action, and then your reaction when you do it. Um, you can also ready a spell and then that's when the reaction takes place and the trigger occurs. The spell must have a casting time of one action and you must concentrate. And that's an interesting thing that people sometimes forget. So if your concentration is broken, the spell dissipates without taking effect. Um, that, I think this is all fine. It's a little bit finicky, you know, in, in terms of these little, you know, the fine print of it, but I, I'm not too concerned about it. What's interesting to me is there is no delay. And you saw that a lot when 5th edition first came out, where people would want to do, in, in 4th and I think 3rd as well was delay, where you can change, sort of go later in the turn. So I don't really want to go yet. I want to go later. And you'll still hear people say, like, I'm going to delay. And it's like, well, no. <laughs> that doesn't really exist. No. What's the, what's, yeah. You've got to ready if you want to do something like that. Right. And what what I thought was interesting is the rules specifically say that the trigger for your reaction must be a perceivable circumstance. Because a lot of times what you'll see, especially advanced players doing, is trying to use a reaction based on a game mechanical thing rather than an in-world narrative thing. Yeah. Right. I will wait until the monster uses their hold person spell. And then I will, well, how do you know that they're casting hold person? Right? Or I will wait until they do this thing that is a game mechanic that is not something that our characters would know or see. And that is specifically not allowed as a perceivable mm -hmm. circumstance. Um, so I, I just thought that was sort of funny that they bolded that, uh, that thing, uh, perceivable circumstance. And I think that this is a good example where the rules try to do try to walk you through it in as simply uh, and clearly a way as possible. First, you decide what perceivable circumstances will trigger your reaction. Then you choose the action. So it tries to help you without doing a lot of um, coaching around it, right? So, so it, do it doesn't speak to the DM, which makes sense because this is the player's handbook to talk about how to adjudicate it or but and so it tries to use language to direct the play but because of that it may not always cover all cases and may leave you know the dm and the players with some confusion and that's just sort of the style of how this is written which i don't necessarily object to but it's just it's interesting to note mm -hmm. yeah i thought that the next one was also interesting which is search because search can have, I mean, it says when you take the search action, you devote your attention to finding something. Depending on the nature of your search, the DM might have you make a wisdom perception check or an intelligence investigation check. And in previous editions, search had a much more narrow definition. It would be like you must spend an action and you in a five foot area, mm -hmm. right, comb through it. To find anything that's hidden or you know that's interesting 
Yeah. And this is much less defined. It's right. You could search something right in front of you. You could use search to search the distant horizon and, <laughs> yeah. you know, ev and everything in between. So this has always been something that as an adventure designer or editor, I've always seen, right. Sometimes people will write in their adventure as an action. They must use their action to search the control panel to find the button that they need to to turn off the trap. Uh, and then in, in other things, it's like it's just a free thing that you can do from across the room. You know, sometimes you have to be in a certain position to do it. It's And it's very nebulous, and I'm not sure that that's bad. It may be a good thing that it's that nebulous that DMs can change it to mean different things at different times. But personally... This is where I love passive perception. Hmm. I, I I don't want to use it as so much like to find hidden things as people travel, but I love to use it when there's information that I want to give the party. And so I will look at the passive perception of the characters so that when if someone has a very high passive perception or the highest perception passive perception among the characters at the table they're the ones that see it and it doesn't take an action to do it yeah 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 that makes sense and and it's a nice way to to get through not tying up actions and just saying you see it or you don't um mm -hmm. and then if you want to you could actively spend an action to do it and this is a good example of, of where one dnd now is codifying actions more at least Currently, it feels that way when you read the glossary. And I think a good question is when you when we see this final chapter, will this feel so incredibly codified to where it feels like that menu of actions that you are, you know, you're reviewing, right? Will, will you see players kind of look at the character sheet and written out, will the actions be on there? And you kind of think of what to do on a particular turn. The more that it works that way, the worse it is. So like I think fifth edition does really well. By having search here as an action, but I think if you asked a lot of GMs and players, you know, name the actions, the different types of actions in 5e, they wouldn't necessarily mention these because mm -hmm. they just sort of think of it as play. And I think that's really right. good that it, it doesn't necessarily feel like, like people would name dodge, disengage, and dash, uh, maybe help. Um, but things like hide or, or search, they would think of more as just things I do during play. And I, and I, and I just, whatever it is that I think my DM might say, well, it's going to take your action dude, or they might not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it, that, that is a good point, you know, in terms of new players specifically and how to get them to understand the duality of the game in that there is a limited number of things that their characters can do in terms of the game mechanics, mm -hmm. but there is unlimited things that the characters can do in terms of the story that they're engaging with. And you, you know, you want them to know you can do these things, but these things that are listed here aren't exclusive. They're, they're inclusive of just the main things you can do, but you can technically do anything. So don't let this list limit you. And and th that's the balance that you need to strike. And that's where this this chapter 
you know, for example, it has a sidebar, improvising an action. Your characters can do things not covered by the action of this chapter, such as breaking down doors, intimidating enemies, sensing weaknesses and magical defenses, calling for parley with a foe. The only limits are whatever, you know, your imagination. And that's fine, but what this isn't doing, it's it's not intersecting directly with rules for the DM on sort of encounter design, right? So if you think about a combat... Mm-hmm. And why would a combat have neat actions to take? Nothing here is prepping you for the DM doing that. Like, like there isn't that conversation that's saying, hey, look around at the environment in your combat. What can your character use? What can your character do? What neat things are here that you can utilize uh, to your advantage or create a disadvantage for your foes? And then it isn't going and having that conversation with the DM saying, hey, we've told DM, we've told your players to get ready for this stuff mm-hmm. and make use of it, right? This is all very clinical around these actions. And I think that D&D would be better off if we had a little bit of that in there, a little bit of this back and forth of mm-hmm. combat should have interesting things. Look for them, use them, right? Look for the chandelier to swing on. Uh, look for ways you can, you know, jump onto the dragon's back, right? Those kinds of things. We don't see that here. And so, and, and we don't see it on the DM side. And so you can end up without that. And then your combat's going to be draw, dry and boring, even though you're perfectly following the rules. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. No, it totally makes sense. Um, the final thing of actions in combat is use an object where you, you normally interact with an object while doing something else, such as drawing a sword as part of an attack. Uh, essentially, the first one's free. You can do it as a free action. Uh, that's not a technical term, as it has been in in uh, previous editions. It's just you can just do it. It doesn't cost anything. Um, but then if you want to do something more than that, you would need to use an object to... Uh, interact with an object or if it's not something that's like a sword you're drawing or something that you would normally do as part of a different action you need to use your complete action to do it such as disarming a trap or uh, something like that because when we look at the thief subclass of rogue right the uh, Mm -hmm. I think this is the thief what's it called I think so um yeah, that's when you have the ability to do these things as a bonus action rather than using your full action to do it. So if it is something that takes a bit of time and effort, you want to make sure that you do make other characters use their full action. Otherwise, you are giving everyone that ability from the rogue subclass of yeah. Thief. Yeah, the fast hands ability of the Thief. Yep. Mm-hmm. Cool. Wow. I remembered things. This is a, <laughs> this is a banner day. It must be the end of 2022. Um, you know, I think with that, we should. Yeah. I, I was going to say, we were corrected on something in the last episode. Now I can't remember what it was. I was going to mention it and say. Oh, Inconceivable. Thanks. Yeah. We were wrong about something uh, again. Um, and now I can't remember what it was. But uh, if you check out the last video, there's a conversation about it where we, we, we made some some leap of logic that was not there. So, but yeah. this episode I'm pretty sure has been flawless and I'm excited to do the rest of it later.
yeah, so we will move on. This being the last episode, as I've said, of 2022, we want to thank lots and lots and lots of people. We want to thank our listeners who continue to give us their attention, and therefore, we being attention-seeking, will continue to make a podcast going into the new year. We want to thank our patrons, every single one of you who has contributed to our Patreon, 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 we very much appreciate it. Whether you are a Master of Dungeons supporter or a Master of Realms supporter and getting a shout out in our show notes, or the exclusive Master of the Multiverse uh, patrons, such as John Wilson, Graham Ward, James Walton, Joe Tyler, Krishna Simonse, Drago Russo, Falcon Neal, Eric Mengi, Adrian Marquez at Post Fiction RPG Audio, Travis Lee, Brian King, Sean Hurst, Ben Heisler, and Paige Lightman, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon.com, Robin Dermy, Darren Chandler, Evil John, Steve Bissonette, and Craig Bailey. Thank you so much for being masters of our multiverse. If you would like to be a patron of the show going into 2023, we would certainly welcome, love, appreciate your support. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash mastering D&D. Teos, where are people going to find your greatness on the internet? Uh, my address is, no. Uh, you can find me at alphastream.org. From there, you can get to... All the things I'm doing on Mastodon, I'm AlphaStream at Dice.Camp. What are you doing, Sean? Where can we find you? I am still hanging on Twitter at mm-hmm. Sean Merwin. Uh, the podcast is also still on Twitter at Mastering D&D. But if you prefer Mastodon, you can go to Dice.Camp to find Mastering D&D there. Um, we also, of course, talk to people on Patreon or... If you want to see our beautiful mugs, uh, that being our faces, not the stuff we drink coffee and tea from, uh, you can leave comments on the Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel. So, Teos, it has been quite a year. The next time we talk, it will be 2023. And what are we going to do now? I'm going to hide from the monsters, and then they will have to look up the rules. And that'll take them so long that while they're looking up the rules, I'm going to sneak attack all of them. Mm-hmm. And I will help you as long as you can do it at the uh, at the start of your next turn. Fantastic. 